Hey friends, I'm Jer Swigart, co-founder of the Global Immersion Project. Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast and our first ever bonus season called Restoring Friendship. Everyday peacemakers are women and men who are joining God and one another in making all things new. We're people who are learning to see more accurately, immerse more courageously, and contend more creatively. Over the past decade, the Global Immersion team has had the privilege of accompanying thousands of American Christians and faith leaders in their journey toward becoming everyday peacemakers. Our conviction is that restoration is the mission of God, making peacemaking not an add-on to our faith, but the very essence of it. Our view of conflict is that it's inevitable. Of injustice is that it's real and that in all of its forms, it seeks to diminish the image of God in another. Both conflict and injustice play out internally, that's within us, interpersonally, that's between us, and systemically, that's within the infrastructure that seeks to organize us. While everyday peacemaking necessarily includes systemic change, it also involves the hard, slow work of becoming more whole, healthy, integrated individuals who are savvy at navigating hard conversations, mending interrupted relationships, and bridging difference into new ones. Put another way, the road to social transformation only ever goes by way of internal and interpersonal peacemaking. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've observed that differing perspectives on faith, politics, race, and even vaccinations have caused many to terminate relationships with family, friends, neighbors, and colleagues. It seems that our ability to navigate hard conversations, tend to interrupted relationships, and bridge differences into new friendships has degenerated. It's as though we're all aware of the fractured relationships in our lives, but many of us don't know how to restore the friendships. Our hunch is that the work of interpersonal peacemaking may be among the most radical and worthwhile efforts of our time. In fact, it may be the very embodiment of the way of love that Jesus is inviting us into. That's the hunch that drove us to create and facilitate the Restoring Friendship webinar series this spring. In this five-part webinar series, we invited five global peacemakers to reflect on how they prioritize relationships, tend to interrupted friendships, and build uncommon alliances. Throughout the spring, five of our global peacemaking friends and colleagues opened up their lives and shared with us how they do the hard, slow work of restoring friendship. In this episode, we hear from Australian peacemaker Jared McKenna, who invited us to allow the Spirit of Jesus to disarm us, unshame us, and relax us into the work of restoring friendship. Uh, this is going to be a lively conversation, and uh, it's one that I've been thinking about since Jared sat at my kitchen table uh, about three years ago um, with my family. And so, Jared, uh, welcome to this particular webinar. We're so glad. Good morning to you uh, as well. Welcome. And I, I wonder if you would self-introduce yourself. I mean, talk to us a little bit about uh, your life, your story, your family, um, your work. And then, of course, what has it been like to navigate a global pandemic in Australia? Take us away. Thanks, Jared. Well, good day. Um, or as I sh should say, the traditional greeting here is Kaya, um, or as my ancestors on my mum's side of the family would say, Shalom. Uh, there you have the Kalak um, going overhead. Um, I I'm outside in my backyard, so you're going to hear 
um, a chorus of uh, uh, bush birds, um, uh, which will which will be fun. But maybe I should start Joe with Nangala Kurich, Nungar Mark, Kain Kadek, Nijabuja. Um, uh, the, the language of this land that I'm on that was never ceded, it was stolen, uh, and a story of 200 years, the place I've been has been called uh, Perth, Australia, or the hills of Perth, Australia. But for 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 years, which is incredible when you think about that kind of time period, the oldest living cultures in the world have been here on the soil that I'm on right now. Um, so in English, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Noongar people uh, and their elders. Um, and, and I do that as a way of storing myself. Um, sometimes I think peacemaking actually starts with uh, uh, other Beatitudes and realising that um, we will inherit the earth. Um, and this inheriting isn't a colonising. Um, it, it's learning to uh, live at peace and welcome the peace that God longs to bring everywhere. In terms of family stuff, um, I'm the son of uh, Faye Saul and Bernie McKenna. Um, my, my co-host for Inverse podcast, uh, Drew Hart, is a PK, which uh, um, those coming in from elsewhere around the world, Americans use that expression to, to say preacher's kid. I'm an MK. Uh, my dad was a monk. So I'm a monk's kid. And my dad migrated to Australia in 1972. And... Um, uh, just last weekend, uh, I was uh, preaching uh, during Anzac Day, which for Australians and New Zealanders is kind of like both our uh, Veterans Day and Fourth of July weirdly combined. It's a it's a a, a difficult and painful um, and trauma provoking date on the calendar, and it's the first time, Jer, that um, my uh, family, instead of fighting against um, Union Jacks, uh, my uncle PJ. Um, to get his citizenship in Australia, served two um, tours of Vietnam with a Union Jack on his arm. So dad's side of the family are Irish Catholic. Um, I know you mentioned my dear friend, Padraig. Uh, I'd be surprised if Padraig would self-describe as um, a Northern Irishman. I think he might just say, like my family, an Irishman. Um, uh, but we'll, we'll leave uh, uh, McKenna family politics um, out of the discussion other than to self-describe myself. My mum's side of the family, um, uh, th they've been in Australia for several generations and uh, Russian Jews that migrated. Um, in terms of um, uh, my personal family here, for the first time in my adult life, I am uh, not living um, with people who are returning from jail or um, are recently arrived asylum seekers or refugees uh, or people who would otherwise be homeless. Uh, I'm living um, with my, the gorgeous love of my life, Kat. Um, our, our boys, uh, Winnie and Hugo, uh, who are 13 and 11, and uh, our little Noah, who has just turned one years old. And I also have a six foot five uh, boy, Tyson, who is now, he's going to be 24 this year, um, uh, who obviously doesn't share my DNA, and that's why he's so, so tall, dark, and handsome. How's that for a little bit of an intro, that's Jeff? That's it. That's good family stuff. That's good family stuff. Hey, the, um, talk to us a little bit about life as, uh, as a dad for the fourth time and all of this coming to, coming to fruition in the midst of a global pandemic. What's that been like for you? 
Yeah, Joe, we didn't know whether I was going to be um, able to be in the hospital at the same time. So Western Australia uh, has a very different approach than those who find themselves on Turtle Island, um, uh, Canada included. So just to give you a little sense of that, uh, we had one case of uh, COVID um, on Thursday last week, which meant that there was a snap lockdown on Friday. This is the biggest state territory or province in the world. So Texas fits into Western Australia three times, I think, to give you a sense of the size of Western Australia. And um, uh, our Premier, Mark McGowan, uh, called a snap lockdown because of one case for three days. And um, so it's a very different reality. Uh, so we're wearing masks for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but the, other than that, um, we've had a really um, uh, staunch kind of governmental response, which means that um, we've had so few deaths, which we're really thankful for. And just goes to show that um, uh, when we have um, wise leadership that doesn't see science as something um, uh, to be um, disregarded, but um, taken into consideration that uh, it actually does save lives. Um, so um, having a, a baby in a pandemic was an interesting experience. And thankfully I got to be in, um, in the room uh, while Kat was giving birth um, to support her and meet this little fella as he came into the world. So that was pretty special. And he's just turned one um, two weekends ago. Love it. Love it. If you follow Jared on his social media accounts, specifically on Instagram, you get to see his life unfold and, and Noah experience the story that he's been born into. So it's pretty, pretty special, man. Congrats on that. Thanks. Um, as, as is true. And any, anytime I'm, um, I'm hanging with my, my friends and my peacemaking colleagues, I, I always, um, I always like to wonder uh, around the stories of origin and like you just mm. gave a story of origin around um, your space in Australia, and even with regard to your, um, with your family, I think there's a story of origin for peacemakers um, from when we awakened to peacemaking and reconciliation to when we started to prioritize it. And I wonder if you would just to, just to bring us into that story a little bit, I wonder if you'd share a little bit of, of, of that, and then we'll, we'll dive into some of this work on interpersonal peacemaking. Yeah, sure. And um, uh, I mean, he, he, here's a little, uh, th this is the hyperlink version, right? Like th this is, um, but I was, I was 13 years old uh, when I gave my life to Jesus and my parents were part of a, a house church where they were undoing some of the fundamentalism um, uh, that they'd come into just a few years uh, prior to my birth. They actually met in that setting and was significant for both of them before it was really damaging for both my mum and dad. And so dad jokes that it was like fundamentalist anonymous, like it was a, a setting, house church setting where people were um, going, what does it mean to follow Jesus in ways that are healing? And I'm really thankful for that space. And Joe, I, I got in uh, to those waters um, as my dad baptised me in this family swimming pool while people stood around uh, the pool and I'm um, saying I've decided to follow Jesus. Um, and I knew very clearly that um, I couldn't get into fights anymore, um, mm. that my tongue or my fists couldn't be used to, to weaponize um, uh, my own pain as a dyslexic kid with ADD who um, uh, was smart but struggled at school. I knew that it meant um, uh, I, I couldn't simply hang out and be one of the cool kids, but um, it, people who would otherwise be pushed to the side and uh, not included in the centre of uh, those social hierarchies that 
were my first year of high school, that all of that had to change for me because I was now a follower of Jesus. And um, that love I said yes to um, in those waters and the identity that it gave me that um, beat my um, equivalent of swords in my life then into plowshares, um, that's, a, that's an ongoing work as my heart is disarmed. Um, and I'm really thankful for parents who are of practical compassion who I saw their faith in action by who they invited into their home, how they responded to people, um, their, their prayer life. Uh, I grew up, um, contemplative prayer was a part of um, my home setting. Um, it's one of the advantages of being an MK is that uh, when your dad's no longer a monk, those practices um, still continued over and uh, we went on retreats. And a, a very diverse, I mean, one of the gifts as well, I think, that I didn't really realise until I lived a year in Nashville, uh, of all places, that um, I grew up with a default setting of um, uh, most people don't understand themselves as Christian. And um, uh, my mates growing up were um, Muslim and Jewish and mostly just your average Aussie um, uh, beer and football uh, is the governing narrative. So um, I think that changes your imagination and how you think about these questions as well. So for me, from the get-go, um what it was to follow Jesus was to uh, renounce violence and make love practical. And uh, in a very real sense, that's that's still true for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I would say it's only intensified and grown more creative as, um, as we've talked and as I've observed. I, I, I want to I want to play on this theme of faith for a moment uh, because mm. I think a, a distinctive of global immersion is that we are a Jesus centric, we're a non-religious organization, but we're a Jesus centric organization. And that means that, that our, our understanding of what it means to be peacemakers is framed up by a dark skinned Palestinian Jew who mm. um, didn't overthrow empires with military, but through self-sacrifice, right. And invited us into a non, a, a way of life, that is creative in love um, and is self-sacrificial to the core. And so, but I, I, I think we see in Jesus, as I was talking about earlier, this idea that, that peacemaking plays out internally, interpersonally, and systemically. I think it's mm -hmm. very clear in the gospels that Jesus is taking on systems. Jesus is actually tending to broken relationships. And then he's actually really concerned as well about identities and the soul, the, the holistic human being, right? Um, your peacemaking, as you just said, is framed uh, in the way of Jesus. I wonder if you could do some theologizing with us, um, especially because you are a biblical scholar. I love the way that you frame the scriptures. Do some framing for us around Jesus um, and the priority that he placed on relationship and how mm. that then builds the framework for how we tend to broken relationships with one another. Yeah, sure, Joe. And maybe something that I find very helpful um, is actually acknowledging how um, religion, I actually think, is part of the problem. Um, and I mean that in a very nuanced way that um, uh, my, my Sikh or um, uh, Hindu or Muslim or Jewish neighbours, uh, I'm not saying that their faith is the problem. I'm saying what binds us together in itself is a problem. Um, so there's a... There's a um, social psychologist named uh, Milton Rokesh who did this study about religion and compassion and basically he was seeking to find out does faith make people more empathetic 
and um, the results came in and he found that non-religious people in this social study were actually more empathetic. Religious people were, for the majority, less empathetic unless they were part of what we might call a mystical minority. And this mystical minority were actually more compassionate than anybody else in the group. And they also identified the same way as the people who are the least compassionate. Now, Joe, I find this fascinating because what it's saying is that there's a certain amount of faith that you can get that will actually, um, uh, in, instead of building bridges, build walls. Uh, it becomes an identity that is um, used against others instead of for others. Uh, but if you keep going on the other side of that, uh, there is something that deepens compassion and empathy and connection um, and a, a desire for reconciliation that's seen nowhere else. And I, I named that right at the start because as we uh, approach um, uh, the life of my Lord, uh, I mean, that geographical reality just south of Canada and north of Mexico um, is a, a great test case of uh, how Christian faith um, can blatantly be weaponized um, to actually uphold everything Jesus came to undo. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's it's not that um, uh, uh, Americans are an exception. Uh, they're, they're just often... <laughs> just so much more so culturally than the rest of us. Like it's just easier to see there. And I know so much of your audience is American as well. Um, and I mean, in your background, uh, I see like a Black Lives Matter protester in conversation with a Confederate flag. What's fascinating for the rest of the world is that um, it's quite possible that both those people uh, in that picture in your background uh, know their scriptures and uh, could, could have a conversation uh, about. Yep. And so to frame right at the outset, it's not merely a question of um, faith and faith being the answer. Um, faith is also the question. It's also part of the problem. And a bit like immunisation, um, it's possible uh, to um, be immunised in such a way that it um, defends you against like a social virus, which is built upon violence or it's um, possible in, in another way to just let it be a, a form of contagion that affects others. So I wanted to name that right at the outset, that um, a, a Christian identity in itself is something that, um, <laughs> well, if, if Christianity continues to say yes to all the things that Satan offered Jesus in the desert and say, no, we're doing it for Jesus, um, what we've done is just added blasphemy to the realities we're already facing. And uh, I think it's really important that Christians own that. And particularly, um, you know, we, we started by talking about um, the traditional lands um, that I'm on. Uh, Christianity has played chaplaincy to colonization, which has come stealing, killing and destroying. Both sides of my family are only recently white. Um, I, I go back to my dad's generation um, in terms of my family, my direct family being involved in armed resistance against colonization. And yet I've been born here and no one need know that about the McKenna story. Um, I, I'm read and experienced uh, as white and all the quote unquote benefits. And one of my mentors, uh, Uncle Vincent Harding, Dr. Vincent Harding, who's no longer with us. Um, when I use the word privilege, he used to slowly say, Jared, find another word. It is not a privilege to benefit from the oppression 
of others. And I, I really appreciate that. And every time I go to say privilege, I stop and think, actually, it's not a privilege to benefit from the oppression of others. Um, the reality of white supremacy and how ch Christianity has deformed itself to play chaplaincy um, for centuries. Um, th this isn't a uh, merely Protestant problem. Um, this goes uh, all the way back to papal bulls, which have justified the stealing, killing and destroying of lands, cultures, languages. Um, and so, Joe, with that in mind, knowing that both sides of my family are recently white, that um, uh, sometimes when I'm involved in very provocative activism, um, anti-Semitism comes to the floor like straight away in comments online and death threats and, and some of the ugly stuff I have to face. Um, for us to then approach Jesus in such ways where it's not, no, 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 no. these are excuses for why I don't have to look at this stuff but actually I can own this stuff and I can look at um, the reality of that which dominates others and it be untoxic for us. So a Christian identity that wants to show that I'm now innocent versus a Christian identity where I step into my baptism and know that Christ has taken the shame, not that I can't stand in those shameful places, but I now stand in those places in ways where it's detoxified. Sometimes, Jerry, I talk about it um, uh, just like our Lord disarms Peter, um, so our Lord unshames us. Disarms and unshames. Um, so the language of unashamed is often awkward for people if we don't step into the reality that it's a, it's a dis-shaming, it's an unshaming. There's something in the process where shame for us is, is no longer uh, something that we need to fear or run from. And so um, being in our faith and those things which um, are uncomfortable, um, you know, I'm I've first time I've grown up middle class in my, my family. For the first time, uh, like my generation on this land in this time period, I am white and benefit um, from the oppression of others. I'm straight. Um, I'm university educated. Um, uh, so in terms of class, in terms of, um, gender into like all those kind of things. And there's so much at the moment, Joe, where um, peacemakers are trying to prove their innocence instead of step into the place of shame and it no longer be toxic, no longer be what names us. And actually we can do the creative work in those spaces to call people not into an innocence, but into confession. And I think Christian activism um, is all about confession. My friend James Allison talks about the joy of being wrong. Um, the, the Christian journey starts with not a new way to show that uh, I'm just unlike everybody else, uh, but to be able to confess that um, in the, the multiple interlocking ways that our, our lives run on injustice, Christians can be a people uh, that can confess this where it's not about our innocence on one side of the culture wars, nor our guilt but instead about those who are suffering and what it is to participate in the undoing of all domination, alienation, violence, mm. injustice and oppression. And I, I love that approach um, uh, because it's life-giving for everyone and it means that there's a, a place that we can work together 
where we're not constantly trying to prove um, that our hands are clean, but that we can confess the blood on our hands and be embraced by people through the power of forgiveness, which builds a new community, what Dr. King would call a beloved community. Mm-hmm. For those of us who would be maybe unfamiliar with this word, because I, I think many who are seeing you for the first time would say, as a white dude who lives in Australia, mm. you just said, I'm only recently white. Can yeah, play, play that out a little bit more. Help us understand what you mean by that. Yeah, um, uh, race is a social construct. So uh, often people's approach to race is like, um, race is real, but it doesn't matter. When actually the opposite is true. Race isn't real, but it really matters. <laughs> Like it's <laughs> um, so like uh, um, my dad's side of the family are Irish Catholic. Um, uh, my family on that side of the f- um, were um, involved in the IRA. Um, uh, this is a, a, a recent expression um, of um, the anti-imperial uh, struggle uh, against um England's first colonization of other lands before they went and did the same thing elsewhere. Um, and uh, historically, the Irish, even in your country, there's a, a brilliant book called um, How the Irish Became White. And it's the story of why you find the Irish in the US joining the police forces um, uh, in, in droves is um, a, a scramble for desperate um, acceptance. And uh, this then um, gets weaponized against others. Um, same uh, with those of us who are also Jewish. Um, the reality is I I can get an Irish passport and actually a UK passport as well because of the uh, 98 uh, Good Friday peace agreement. So I can get both um, those passports, but I also can get an Israeli passport, which is always interesting when I'm being detained um, in Israel, which always happens when yep. like yep. I'm in Palestine, Israel. Hundred <laughs> um, percent. Uh, so they're like, uh, why? Why don't you? Uh, these realities um, are part of this story, um, and realizing that one of the things that white people lose in understanding themselves as white is their own story is their own ancestry um, is their own languages is their own tales um, and there are deep resources in what we must confess for conversion um, so transformation is not merely found in those parts that um, are, are you know pleasing but are actually in those parts that are painful as well Joe. and so for uh, for me, it's really important not to try and make um, my Jewishness or my Irishness a way of saying, hey, I'm not white. Actually, I am white um, in the sense that that's how society relates to me. But it's not my story. And so in confessing white supremacy, I have nothing to lose and everything to be liberated from. So I would encourage people to to tell their story um, uh, to find uh, who they were before we traded in our identities to actually um, take part in a very flimsy, fragile, and that's why whiteness is so fragile in terms of white fragility. It's not real. It's not a, a story uh, that goes back very far. And to discover our ancestors, um, their languages, their stories, um, their pain, and realise their um, the, the building blocks for building bridges and uh, the tools for taking down walls are actually in our own story when we stop relating to ourselves merely as white. Mm-hmm. 
but to pause there and never use that as an excuse not to take on the critique of how we've been formed in societies to relate to others. And it's a, it's a dangerous work. So for those that are interested, um, uh, uh, my kind of home church in uh, Canada is a place called The Meeting House um, that had me every time um, uh, on your continent. And uh, there's a series I did with Bruxy where we talked about um, white blokes talking about whiteness that's available on YouTube, um, which is hopefully a gift that's useful for white people understanding their whiteness um, in light of their baptism. And um, there's a sermon series in their peacemaking. Um, they do a, an annual peacemaking uh, series and they were talking about race. And um, it's, uh, I preach on the white elephant in the room, combining those two expressions, an elephant in the room being that which you don't want to talk about and a white elephant being something that is really rare. And just the reality that um, if white people don't deal with this, our peacemaking is always going to be a power play and it's not the power of the age to come. It's not the power of the reign of God. It's not the power that rose Jesus from the grave. It's a coercive power that seeks to keep us at the centre of the story. And when when our self-understanding becomes the default setting, like, you know, your, your mobile phone, your cell phone, um, there's factory settings that you can reset. And um, despite 60,000 years of history on the lands that I'm on right now, for some reason, people who are melanin-challenged like me, Jer, become the default factory settings for this these lands we now call Australia. The same is true um, for, for those who, who live under that star-spangled banner. Um, and it's those realities which actually re reveal the principalities and powers that animate our institutions and our personal psychologies. And that's why I love global emergence so much is because you take those, um, uh, you bring together what is actually never separated. Um, the, the, the personal um, psychologies that are animated by structural realities must be named in such ways that if our baptismal identity, who we see God to be in um, that unarmed peacenik, um, that brown-skinned brother from Palestine um, who was hung on a Roman cross, if it's not his provocative nonviolence that is naming us, if it is something else, even if it comes with Bible verses, all we've done is added to the principality and powers um, memory verses mm -hmm. and it, it still leaves us in a place where we're untransformed and in fact we're using the things that would actually disarm us and arming it ourselves and defending ourselves against the work of the holy spirit and the world that god wants to welcome and so sometimes a, a really helpful way um, even in the moment of checking ourselves in conversations is to ask is my defensiveness because I'm being asked into an identity that is deeper than I, what I want to defend. And then go, okay, so if the Holy Spirit is at work and I'm being called into an identity that actually, if I live into that, it self-empties, what do I have to lose in taking on this critique? And, and that's the personal work that must combine with the systemic change um, uh, if we're going to welcome the world God dreams of in uh, in ourselves and in our societies. Spot on, Jared. Thank you. That's um, that's rich. That is rich. I want to pause just for a moment. There's a lot that just happened um, in that segment. I wonder what you're wondering, friends. Uh, what what popped for you? 
Um, just if you got a, like, I've got my notebook and I'm writing down as, as we go, uh, grab a bullet point or two out of that segment. And if there's a question that comes to your mind, pop it in the Q and a, uh, so that we can play with it either here or in our, our debrief on, um, on May the 6th, but let's in, in light of the first half hour of this conversation, let's, let's turn our attention now to this work of interpersonal peacemaking. Um, yes, mm. it's deeply internal. Yes, it's deeply systemic. Um, and the way to the systemic change seems to include all three of these. And, and so in this particular series, of course, we're talking about interpersonal peacemaking with regard to interrupted relationships. And what, what we mean by that is these are pre-existing relationships, whether family, friends, neighbors, colleagues, faith members in our communities, whatever it is, where we've had a relationship and now it's fractured and we don't know what to do about it. The second form is recognizing that that person over there is different than me, uh, different theology, different politic, different et different ethnic identity, different sexual orientation, whatever it is. I don't know how to bridge dif the difference to actually be in relationship with this person. And so let's let's start first at the interrupted relationships. And I, I wondered, mm. wondered if you just break open some of your your own life. How do you prioritize? interrupted relationships? What are some of the go-to practices that, that you engage in to, um, to restore friendships? Yeah, thanks, Joe. And um, if I can be provocative um, and maybe permission giving, um, I, I want to give us added, as a disclaimer right at the start that there is a certain sense that um, our Lord's peace, as opposed to the Pax Romana or the Pax Americana or Australiana, um, will disrupt relationships. Um, our Lord does not come to bring uh, peace as um, the empire offers. And I think it's important to describe how that peace actually functions, but a sword. Um, yet, as Dr. King shared um, in the first book that I ever read by him uh, when uh, I was 18 years old, um, uh, the, the sword heals, um, that it's the sword of nonviolence. So there is a certain sense that... Um, uh, following Jesus, as Daniel Berrigan says, if you're going to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. Um, there are real costs, um, both social and personal in terms of our relationships, uh, but it's making sure that um, uh, knowing that the healing justice we are called to, which is the context of our peacemaking and uh, bridge building, um, while it does fracture and pull apart it fractures what is not real to call us into what is deeper and is real and that's not an identity of us versus them but strangely um as bonhoeffer talked about that um the the, the church is for others just as christ is the one for others and so i want to give permission right at the front um, particularly um, different personality types those those of us who um uh, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Um, we can be so ultra sensitive and care way too much in ways that are unhealthy about what people think of us. Um, and we can um, uh, bend over um, backwards to try and uh, keep relationships. If, if a re relationship is unhealthy, um, some of the work that reconnects, some of what it is to be serious about reconciliation is actually to let go of the unhealth and then allow um, the, the miracle of can connections be remade that is actually based on health 
um, that is not based on domination, uh, that is not based on codependence, um, that, that is not based on a, a, a unhealthy holding together. Because you know, there, there is a very real way, and this is the, um, the ways that empires will hold relationships together, that if, if those listening and participating now want to make peace, one of the easiest ways is find someone with a person you're seeking to come back into relationship with, find someone that you both hate and hate them together. And it'll work. You will come back into relationship faster than doing any of the real work of healthy relationships that aren't codependent, that don't actually, if, if you can, if you can kill another Abel, if you can become Cain's and then hide the bodies of, of those you hate, um, there is a peace that is formed. And whether it's the um, uh, ancient civilizations um, uh, that our nations are the most recent expressions of, continue to function on hiding bodies of victims. And so, um, uh, this is a very popular way. So um, if you can find someone to hate, and like politics is sometimes the business of organising hate um, across lines that bring people who otherwise have little together, together. Um, you, you know, it's that you don't need a common God um, to hold people together. You just need a common devil. And I think we need to name that like as a real temptation right at the outset and say this is not what Jesus invites us into. Um, that's not the kind of faith that Jesus invites us into. Um, it, and uh, it's, it's very popular and it's, it's popular on different sides of the culture war as well. Um, uh, so I know proximity has been talked about as a practice and, you know, I, I've lived my adult life um, uh, practising radical hospitality in um, new monastic and intentional communities um, that I founded and proximity is incredibly powerful um, but there are proximities which are numb as well as proximities which um, are empathetic and open and so M. Sean Copeland um, in our inverse subversive seminary have been working through her text um, Knowing Christ Crucified and this womanist um, theologian as my neighbour leaves for work, um, yeah, um, points out that the social arrangements in the United States during segregation, people had deep proximity to each other, uh, even to the per point of um, uh, those on the receiving side of white supremacist social relations nursing at, like, at the breast white children so proximity in itself isn't enough we need the kind of proximity which um, has um, undergone um, calvary and i mean that in not just kind of preacher ways but in specific ways to go back to jesus disarms us and he unshames us so it's a proximity where um, we don't carry weapons um, and we know that we can't welcome a new world by defending anything, um, but by um, opening. And then to stay in the place of shame where we can see the, the false pieces 
if I could put it like that, but the, the false peace that our societies offer that are built on hatred. And instead of entering into shame in how do I hold these things together, we drop those things and allow those things to actually be unmasked. Um, I, I am convinced that discipleship is about making naked that God is love like Jesus does upon the cross while also exposing all that doesn't look like that love. That um, discipleship is confrontational as well as conciliatory. And the confrontation is um, not with individuals. You know, it's those memory verses that um, a battle is not against. So with flesh and blood, like for those of us who've grown up um, knowing uh, the scriptures, um, to take that seriously as a dynamic for our peacemaking, um, what are the things that animate that we want to locate in individuals but are actually um, uh, are the imaginative fields, they're the, the animating mythologies, they're the stories that um, uh, the principalities are about, the principles that we run on and the stories that hold those principles and the, hour, um, the, the, the power, the energy that's behind those um, and how discipleship must unmask them, Joe, um, while also um, making naked the confrontational, provocative, nonviolent healing justice that we see in Jesus. And I think those two things have to hold together at the same time. And that sounds kind of ephemeral until we start making it practical. Um, practically, I think it means a, like a, a commitment to letting our yes be yes in places where people want to change what they say, depending on the context in which they're in and um, w- w- what it is to actually take seriously that um, that which dehumanizes, that animates so much of our social settings, um, loves when we don't tell the truth. Yet we're called to let our yes be yes and our no be no, and know that anything else comes from the evil one. Joe, it comes back to um, judge not lest you be judged, and that's not the end of the teaching. For the same measure you judge others, realizing that we will be judged, like the the way that we perceive others and participate um, uh, in with others, that's actually becomes the way that we start to perceive, perceive ourselves. And so to do the, the difficult business that comes to us in the silence of prayer, of removing the logs um, that are made up of the same stuff that we see in others and taking our Lord's teachings um, seriously enough that these, these become deep way, truth-telling, um, doing the deep psychological work of um, removing the logs that we project upon others, realizing they're made of the same material, um, then we can be of help to our sister and brother. Um, so f- for me, these are these are the practices that make um, uh, the confrontational and exposing work of the cross and the revelatory work of the cross, uh, both revealing the nonviolent provocative love and exposing the injustice, the domination, the alienation, the violence, the oppression. Um, if we lose either one of those, these are the, the two hands of nonviolence, one that holds out God's 
provocative, nonviolent, healing, justice, and love. And the other says no to all injustice, oppression, evil, like those two hands have to be held out at the same time. And for so many of us, it's a balance of, am I just doing this? And some personality types do this and become doormats. Or am I just doing this and some personality types just do this and it is, is, is everything confrontation but no invitation into a new world? And I think we've got to be able to, to start to do this. And for me, that's the importance and, and the place of all of this coming from prayer is prayer is the very place where we immerse ourselves in, in a love that we're seeking to swim in elsewhere. Um, and people drip what they've been swimming in. So if what's forming us is social media or um, the 24-hour news cycle, we will um, drip the hatreds um, that our societies uh, are formed across those um, battle lines. Um, If instead what's forming us is the disarming, unshaming power that we see at Calvary when we look at Calvary through resurrection, well, then we actually have something to offer the world. Then we have activists who Christian doesn't become an excuse um, or Bible verses added on, but it's a different way of being in these spaces. Yeah. So so for those of us listening in who are like, okay, I, I live more in this space than this space, or the people who are like, I live more in this space than this space. And you're, you're inviting us interpersonally to find attention. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a both and here. Mm-hmm. Coach us. How, how, do you go, how do you go from an extreme to a moderate? How do you go from one general practice to holding both of these appropriately? Yeah. I think this is why, and particularly um, like you're a mate and you know the tragedy that I faced um, about six years back where my life changed um, dramatically um, and completely out of my control. And, um, you know, I've been running um, teachings on contemplative prayer since like my early 20s um, uh, and it's nearly 20 years on from that now. But I think the importance of contemplative prayer Um, is actually this work has to be about learning to relax in that power that we're describing Um, and um, to develop the kind of disciplines where um, where what we want, I mean, we're talking friendship, what we want from others in terms of friendship and maybe as an exercise people can imagine what are the qualities that I want from, from other people? Is it loyalty? Is it a um, uh, sense of humour? Is it um, companionship? Is it intimacy? If, if we aren't first having that desire we long for and rightly long for met in the silence of prayer, there is a danger that the way that we relate to others, even with our good intentions, uh, will be an unconscious kind of seeking to manipulate reality for those things and so to relax into the silence of this moment and this moment is where god always meets us and know that that which we desire or the kind of friend we want to be to others that that is how god relates to us now and knowing that friendship is that work of um, real friends you can be disarmed around right Real friends, they know your most shameful stuff. They see that stuff. 
and um, they don't let you get away with it, but nor do they name you by it. Mm-hmm. And Joe, I think we have to have an experience of that nonviolent love in prayer, which is more powerful than the powers that we're up against and we're seeking to transform in our world. And um, and people can tell, mate, you know, like <laughs> those who are on about that, you, you don't get a sense that they're perfect. Um, you, you actually get a sense of, oh, wow, they're, they're just as problematic as me. And yet they're made safe because they're becoming aware of all the ways in which um, they would be dangerous if they didn't do the work. And so it's in that place that we can start to feel this and what actually motivates this. And to, to in the silence, uh, allow ourselves to go, what a friend I have in Jesus, right? Like, so l- let me get folksy on, on, like, you know, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There's not now where it is not near us. No, not one. No one. You know, Jesus knows all about my troubles and he will guide till the day is done. What is that experience of friendship for us where we know we are, we are loved with no strings attached while everything is seen and we are disarmed and we are unshamed? And that experience of love has to become our default setting. Otherwise, the 24-hour news cycle, the social media and the, the hates that are so easily on offer will be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me, you know, lis- listening in on this conversation, Jared. It, again, it, there, there is a conversation to be had about technique and, and practices. Mm. But I'm stunned by how often in this peacemaking journey, it comes back to the question, who must I become? Mm. Who, who must I become in Christ in order to show up interpersonally as unshamed, as disarmed, as dripping what I'm swimming in, yeah. right? And, yes. and the, the outflow of my life is restorative in my relationships with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There's there's specific techniques, and we'll we'll get to those. I think in, as the more of those as as this series unfolds. But to frame this whole conversation in the question, who must I become, mm-hmm. rather than what do I do, it feels like the right starting space. Yeah. Um, and, and so to, to be explicit, Joe, what people should do is spend 10 minutes in the uncomfortability of silence each day where they feel like all these things are coming into them that are negative and realize, no, no, they're actually, they have 10 minutes to actually start to come out all those voices, all those accusations, all that stuff, that isn't something evil coming in. All that stuff is the scripts we're running on. So I would encourage people to, to become people of prayer. Pay attention to the bird songs that um, hopefully surround you in the settings you're in and allow them to be the kind of call to worship where we're not like revving ourselves up into something but relaxing into something that is approaching us and inviting us into peacemaking is never our initiative. It's joining in on what God is always doing. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing when we talk about our four practices of everyday peacemaking. Mm-hmm. We always go see, immerse, contend. Yeah. But restoration is not a practice; it's a participation, man. Because there's nothing Beautiful, more yeah. committed to to restoration than the, than the Spirit who animates our lives. You know, and uh, and we have to be unarmed, unshamed, relaxed into the movement if we're going to participate yeah. in the revolution. 
And Jer, I think it's only there that we can um, then go uh, when relationships actually end because unhealth injustice is being exposed. I can bless them, I can yeah. pray for them, but I don't have to chase in such a way that um, I'm, I can't be well unless everybody thinks I'm cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but instead it becomes like, okay, how, how, do, how do I become a gift for them, be, leave the door open for um, when they are prepared, but actually be okay? Yeah, man. I mean, think about it, Jared. Like Jesus died hated and alone. Yeah. Yeah. John Deere, um, when my life went sideways, like um, that half decade ago, um, uh, one of his advice to me is like, Jared, did you think, so this is John Deere who'd not, um, Desmond Tutu nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. He said, Jared, did you really think you could follow Jesus and not also be betrayed? <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. Right. Okay. Mm. It, it's part of the journey, yep. but to, yeah. to not be a victim in that place, yeah. but, but know the forgiveness and the power that is deeper than that, mm -hmm. where even these things done to us can be given back to the world as gifts because love is allowed to do its transfiguring work. Uh, last word, man, how would you bless and commission this community? Firstly, by saying thank you, Jer. Thanks to everyone who um, at this time is uh, realising that um, Global Immersion is a, a beautiful place to actually um, be immersed in a different story in a different way. So I'm, I'm thankful for you lot. I'm thankful for your witness. And uh, I just encourage you to keep going. I, I know there are real costs to this work, uh, but it is worth it. So please keep going um also an offer of um uh if dr drew hart and myself can be of help our inverse community um is a is a lovely uh parallel um uh for the work that you're doing with global motion so if the inverse podcast is helpful uh, please check that out um we run a uh, subversive seminary during the week and liberating Sunday school. Um, so there are things on offer. But Joe, I, I would love to end in prayer, if I may. Let's do it. Precious Lord, in the silence of this moment, would you bring us back to our breath? And the good gift that it is that you woke us up this morning, that there is air in our lungs, that all of creation is already at praise, at the beauty of your name, waiting with groans for us to join in. Lord, we welcome your spirit to disarm our heart. We thank you for the way that in Jesus, you have taken all shame. Give us new eyes to see, resurrection eyes, that we need not run from the places in ourself and in our world that desperately need your love. But give us the courage to let your light in. Lord, disarm our hearts. 
unshame our way of being, that we might plow our weapons back to the earth and learn to trust in you. In the name of the Holy One in three and three in one. Amen. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, dear brother. Blessings, friends. See you soon. Take care, all. Thanks for listening to episode one of the Restoring Friendship bonus season. Don't miss episode two featuring author and Twin Cities-based peacemaker, Oshida Moore, who invites us to receive the reality of our own belovedness so that we can better acknowledge the belovedness in one another. For more information on the work of Global Immersion and how we develop everyday people into everyday peacemakers, visit us at globalimmerse.org. Special thanks to Embers, our community of monthly investors who make the Everyday Peacemaking podcast possible. Music for this episode is by Scott Holmes. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and mastered by our good friend, Kip Jones. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Friends, God's restoration is happening. Join in it and know that you're not alone.